This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 459th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today has been described by the Washington Post as, quote, the voice of millennial black women for more than a decade, close quote, with the publication adding, quote, for a certain generation of black women, her volume of work is like the Harry Potter books, stories about characters who grow and mature alongside their fans, close quote. She first caught people's attention with her web series, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which ran from 2011 through 2013. But she blew up into a full-fledged A-lister in 2015 with the launch of the HBO comedy series Insecure, the story of a young black woman navigating work, romance, and friendship in South L.A., which she co-created and on which she wrote and starred. It was only the second comedy series after Wanda Sykes' Wanda at Large and the first premium cable scripted series ever created by and starring a black woman. And over the course of the show's run, it twice landed her on Time Magazine's annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2018 and this year, and also brought her Emmy nominations for producing when its fourth season was nominated for Best Comedy Series in 2020, and in the category of Best Actress in a Comedy Series in 2018, 2020, and for her work on the show's fifth and final season this year, Issa Rae. Over the course of our conversation, the 36-year-old and I discussed some of the people, shows, and events that sparked her interest in becoming a content creator, and the devastating incident that sparked the idea for The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, how, after that web series ended, two veterans of TV, Larry Wilmore and Prentice Penny, worked with her to develop Insecure into a multi-layered cultural phenomenon, what she's been up to since the Insecure chapter of her life came to a close, including the new HBO Max comedy series that she created and writes on, Rap Shit, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Issa, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And uh, on this one, we always begin truly at the beginning. Could you please share with our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I was born and raised in L.A., and my mom was a teacher, and she's retired now. She's not gone, thank the Lord. And my dad is a retired uh, pediatrician. Nice. And I, you know, learning about you prepping for this, I, I had not known that you spent a chunk of your childhood actually in Senegal. Uh, can you share how that came to be? Yeah, so my dad is Senegalese, and my mom was a French teacher, and they met in uh, in France when they were in college, or when she was in college, she was in med school, and um, 
yeah, just he loves his country and he used to always want us to to know where we came from and to meet his side of the family. So we'd go there often. Uh, and then there was one point my mom my mom was kind of done with L.A. It was during the time of living in South L.A. and lots of gang violence. And she was scared for her her two older sons. And so was like, let's move to Senegal. And so um, I spent like two years there of my childhood, but we used to go back every summer. And then after that, moved to, to Maryland for my elementary school years. And then I've been back in L.A. since I was 11. So I don't know if this was during, I guess this would probably have been when you came back after the age of 11. But I, I read that maybe the first showbiz personality who really registered on your radar was Marla Gibbs from uh, Jefferson's. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my grandparents lived in Inglewood and they, they lived in this gated community and Marla Gibbs lived there as well. And they were always, they're walkers. And even when I lived in that same gated community, in my adult years, like I would walk and I would see Marla Gibbs and she was just, you know, living her best, beautiful life. And I would say hi. She was just friendly and she just goes to the grocery store shops. She's just a, an Inglewood staple. And I always thought that that was so cool. And I guess, you know, just kind of. I guess part of the reason it was cool was what this is not just a, a famous person, but it's a, a famous black person who lives in this neighborhood where you're from. And. It's it's possible, right? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. She was, you know, obviously older than I was, but she was on a very famous, like, canon black sitcom. Here she is just living and being great. And to be able to ha see that in front of me, it felt tangible. Um, and also just her living in a predominantly black community was so dope to me. So just a lot of love for Marla Gibbs. Yeah. So I guess the other place where, you know, for a few years, people uh, who were, you know, your age growing up as kids got to see something that then kind of went away, which was this brief period when black characters were kind of very present on TV, thanks to Fox and UPN and um and I guess, uh, you know, a few other, the WB. Um, yeah. And then that went away for very interesting and troubling reasons. I know there's books and articles that have been done about this, but I guess it affected you in one way from what I read because you somehow wind up at a taping of Moesha? Yeah, I mean, when I moved back to LA, which was super exciting for me, we had been in Maryland for five years and I had... I was a huge TV fanatic and loved those the 90s shows of that time and wanted to be a part of them in some way. And so moving back to L.A. was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be in the place where they make these shows. This is this is crazy. Like I'm going to Hollywood. And within the first couple of months that I was there, one of my childhood uh, best friends, she got us hooked up with tickets to a live taping of Moesha. And for me, that blew my mind. Like I was going to be able to sit in the live studio audience of this show that I watch all the time with an icon. And then going there, you know, I, I want to teleplay. And that for me changed everything. I'd already been like toying around with writing fake TV shows and stuff. But like to have a teleplay to see how it was written was incredible to me and really taught me so much. Like for me, that was a blueprint. And you were, so at that point, you're still only 11, I think you said, and you have this 
this material, which uh, as you're saying, it's kind of like, oh, wait, there is a way that this is how they do it. I could, I can try to replicate this. Um, I guess I want to ask you when you, as you know, a few years later, a few years past high school, go off to college, Stanford, um, were you already thinking in terms of this could be something I do for my career? I mean, I know that when you were at Stanford, it was not your major anything related to film, TV, theater, but it was still something you were involved with. So what were your, mm-hmm. wh- when did it first seem real to you that this is something you might actually pursue? In college, I was trying to pursue it via like entering a co- contest for for Sundance and, you know, we were semifinalists and I you know, had a writing partner in, in college and stopped out for a month to, I mean, for a quarter because my parents would not let me do any longer to take classes at New York Film Academy and learn there and also try to network while I was in L.A. Um, and so for me, it was like it, 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 because I was from there, because I saw and I was sitting in that studio audience, it just felt so close and so attainable. And being from L.A., living in L.A., you're always a degree or two separation from someone who could be your next big break. And I operated like that. Like I, I assumed that I was going to come from someone in my network, like, but you know, it didn't, but for me, it was still, I was still hopeful. So it always felt like something that I could do, but it just always felt, uh, within reach, but out of my grasp. So one thing that I know you did while you were at Stanford is actually, it's kind of eerily, similar to what a recent guest of ours, Quinta Brunson, did at her school, uh, where she was at Temple, you're at Stanford, but you both were making web content about what it was like to be a black person at a very white place. Um, Can you share a little bit about what Dorm Diaries was and and (laughs) what you you kind of took away from, I guess, your first time really making something on a consistent basis? Yeah, I was really influenced by... Um, I mean, Christopher Guest movies and the mockumentary format, I want to say, was at the British version of The Office at that time. And um, I was just really fascinated by that as a concept. And so Dorm Diaries is a series about being uh, what it was like to be black at Stanford. And I had the idea to release it when Facebook released their posted items feature, which was not done before. And it was just basically the ability to share Um, share articles, share videos, everything. And so I was like, oh, I can share these YouTube videos. And there's already a very active Facebook community within my school. I'm super active on Facebook. Let me just share this. Let me make something for this audience and my audience of um, Stanford students and the black community. And so that was just made with my friends, made with the the school library's camera, and it started to spread to other college campuses where people could relate. And I thought that that was, you know, I always call it my epiphanous moment where I was like, oh, I'm I'm waiting on someone, but this is kind of I'm making it, and this is a direct relationship with this audience that I've I've built. So you graduated in '07, I guess for. Um I think I know why, but you moved to New York for a little bit after that. And while you're there, I guess with some idea of trying to sell a version of Dorm Diaries to a TV network, 
it, I read like a pretty shitty thing happened to you, which in the in the grand scheme of things may have actually been a, a blessing in disguise. But I guess, can you explain how you wind up for the first time, you know, the series of events that lead to this idea for another web series? You know, Sonny, I never described it as a blessing, blessing in disguise, but it, yes, it is. It was. It got me up out of there. Uh, even though it took a year. But I got robbed. My apartment got robbed. I didn't physically um, get robbed, but I left for work one morning. And when I got back, me and my roommate stuff was just all gone, including my laptop, which like I had a meeting with um, an exec the next day to try to pitch dorm diaries. Um, but that was almost the least devastating thing. I was I was editing a guy's film because that's how I would also pay the bills. I was working in theater um, in a nonprofit theater company. And then I would edit on the side for extra money. And this guy I had been editing his feature film for like a year, maybe maybe six months. I don't know. Time felt long. And it was the one day he gave me his original tapes because he was like, let's just see what else we can find with the footage. And so I was like, OK, yeah, I'll bring it back and I'll get, I'll get it back to you. And so I had my camera set up because I had like bought a camera with my credit card and it was next to the bed and I had all his tapes and they stole all that. I got them stealing the camera, but I was like, why did they steal his original tapes? And someone was like, because you had the camera next to your bed, they probably thought it was like porn. You were like, <laughs> and I was like, even still, leave it to me, please. But I was that that was the worst news delivering like his his life's work, his originals were were gone. So it was just it was shitty. It was such a violation. Um, and but I still stayed there. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm still going to determine to make it in New York. And I guess how does that moment sort of connect to what your next project would be, Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, where I guess you were not in a good place for a while after that, right? I wasn't. I was journaling a lot. Being in New York, I was separated from a lot of my friends. And, you know, I was making new friends and stuff in New York, but it was still, I was isolated. And I, where my other friends, like my roommate, was on a solid career path coming out of public health. And her job was amazing. And my other friends were like, in law school or in med school or diplomats and all these different things that felt like they had specific tracks. And I was really just insecure about my place and then trying to put myself out there, getting in the entertainment industry. It is like people always tell you it's who you know and it's about putting yourself out there. And I just found that I could not do that. I was just always in my head about it. I was always socially uncomfortable and after trying to do that a couple of times I like wrote in my journal I'm awkward and black like those two things just occurred to me like you know those two things together I didn't see often and I was like oh this is this is an identity this is like an archetype that I have not seen on television before or in a very long time if I had and um, you know, it took me a while. It took a while for that idea to gestate. Like I wanted it to be an animated series and then T-shirts and all these other things. And I wouldn't pursue it until two years later when I moved back to L.A. And once it got going, you've called it like a training ground for what you ultimately would go on to do, because I guess the this was the first time you're working on something with a what you call a community of just black women being able to vent and create stories and laugh. This was in a way, I guess, a, a model for insecure. I mean, it's it, how, how influential was it 
in terms of what you learning, what you did and didn't want to do. I mean, just to to that point, I know you've talked about the the romantic interest of your character on that was this guy, White Jay, a white character. And you've said that was not your particular preference, I guess, but there were compromises that you thought you had to make at that point. But so just, I guess, the good and the bad lessons that you took away from from Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. So many lessons from the web series that gave me my career. One, you know, as the show, I started doing the show initially by myself um, and just asking friends for help. And from asking friends for help, you know, that, that like, I, I was just scared to do so just because everybody's so busy. And, you know, once I did, um, my, my same writing partner from college, Tracy, ultimately helped me to produce the later episodes and brought an official crew on. And I learned so much more just about like what a legitimate crew um, could do for the series. And and the, the production quality increasing brought more eyeballs to it. And even um, the way that I wrote was different. You know, she was like, treat it like a TV show. And I was like, OK, like even in the, in the way that you write it, because I was writing them on just blank pages of paper and I didn't have a format the way that I knew how to write. And she was just like, you got to you got to do that. And so that really helped kind of just to change the mentality of making it official. And then she was like, you should bring in other writers, like do a writer's room. And so we enlisted another friend, um, Amy from Stanford, and who's still produ- who produces Awkward Black Girl, who just directed an episode of my new show, Rap Shit. Like, she's in the fold. Um, and another brilliant writer from a UCLA program, O.C. Smith. And it was just four black women at Amy's house, just meeting once a month to, to figure out these episodes together. And I remember just thinking, like, this is a job that people do just sit around and I know they don't do it at somebody's house all the time, but this is, this could be like a job and it's so much fun and it really is such a beautiful community. And while we all have different jobs, some like Amy was actually in uh, an assistant in a writer's room and OC was still getting her master's and um, I can't remember what exactly Tracy was doing at the time, but we were all in these environments where this wasn't the norm. And so this, the space felt really sacred for us to be able to vent and dream together. And I remember that feeling special and wanting to replicate that when I had the opportunity to do Insecure. But in that journey of the show becoming more successful, I got opportunities to take it to television, but the, the compromise would always be either let's cast it anew and I was like, uh, you know, I, I have no ego about things, but like, I really love the audience, the, the characters that we've established. And I don't want to, I don't want to do that to the actors who have poured so much into the show. And another one was just like, uh, another person that pitched it wanted to like create different formats where it was like awkward Israeli, awkward Indian boy, like all these different things. And I was like, this is weird. It's very, <laughs> very specific. And I'm not like. I made this for the internet and I'm not pressed to just sell it to TV and compromise those things. But that meant being broke longer and, you know, being really patient uh, about the next opportunity that would come, if it would come at all. And I guess in between Awkward Black Girl and then Insecure, there were things that you put a lot of heart and soul into that did not 
end up panning out. Like I heard about this one project, uh, I Hate L.A. Dudes, which oh, was, yeah. I guess, uh, something that at one point you were working with Shondaland on. Um, yes. And essentially that was, you know, there were things I, I think people sometimes assume like they look at somebody's career trajectory and they're like, oh, it was just one thing right after the other. And it was smooth sailing all along. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it seems like there was always a kind of general end goal in mind. I found this interview you did in 2011 with Vulture, where you said, quote, I would love Awkward Black Girl to be on television with the right team of people who understand and get it. If Awkward Black Girl could make it to HBO starring a dark-skinned black girl, that would be revolutionary, close quote. So it's kind of uh, amazing uh, yeah. what, what did end up happening. So I wonder if you can just... Um, I think a, a crucial step in connecting the dots here would obviously be how do you first cross paths with somebody named Larry Wilmore, who's been involved with just about every show on TV that's had black characters prominently featured yep. in the last, you know, 30 years, I guess. I got lucky with my representation. So like after the I Hate L.A. Dudes show didn't pan out, I was devastated. I, I felt like I had blown my one shot at a comedy pilot and then HBO called and asked me if I had a show idea and I didn't but um, I knew I didn't want to do Awkward Black Girl but if it was going to if I was going to be featured you know I'm awkward and black so that wasn't going to go anywhere <laughs> they would still have those characteristics right. um, so I developed what would ultimately become Insecure and, and pitched it and then my reps um, were just like you're going to if the show gets picked up to pilot, like, you're going to need a showrunner. Who are you thinking of? And I'm like, I don't know. Y'all tell me. So we're <laughs> like, well, there's Larry Wilmore. Maybe you can meet with him and see if you guys vibe. And I was like, oh, I love Larry Wilmore. I'd love to. And that first meeting, we just clicked. And he was just so great. And he's such a good listener, in addition to being, like, funny and brilliant. Uh, he was really, I just come out of a situation where I felt like I was too eager to please and didn't have um, a, a voice, you know? I just didn't have a point of view, rather, in terms of what I was trying to say. And he was really great about f helping me figure out what my point of view was by just lots and lots of conversations on his rooftop. Um, and at I that was going to say, yeah, yeah. no, I, I see a quote from him that I want to just read back to you. Maybe it'll yeah. spark a few memories. Uh, he... Uh, yeah, he said that that you guys spent about a month on where he's essentially interviewing you on on your roof or on his, was it his rooftop? His, his roof, buildings, yeah. Um, downtown L.A. And, and he says, quote, I asked her what was going on in her life, what's important to her, her sex life, what she thinks about. And we built the show out of that. Is that that's how you remember it as well? That's exactly how I remember it. But I thought we were just talking. I thought we were just like, oh, we're getting to know each other. This is so cool. <laughs> He's so open. And yeah, I feel comfortable being open, too. And it was yeah. almost like <laughs> what, like in Karate Kid when uh, Daniel is watching, washing the cars and yes. wax on my And it was like all these things. And now he's like, you're ready to fight. And I was like, oh, shit, this is crazy. I'm ready to fight. We're ready to make the show. We had all the makings there. Right. So he's Mr. Miyagi in that way. He's so, <laughs> so, so great and knows what he's doing. So I don't remember at what point Mr. Miyagi uh, 
croaked in the in the Karate Kid, but um, you had a you had a, a version of that where you you uh, oh, <laughs> right <laughs> you 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 lost Mr. Miyagi in a different way here. Uh, what yeah. so you know it was pretty devastating when Larry gets the opportunity of of his life in a sense at at the moment to do the nightly show just when you think you got a thing that's that's ready to go how how devastating was that in the moment to learn that he's not going to be able to continue along for the ride and then actually and then why was it that you could later say quote thankfully larry leaving for the nightly show as much as i love him was the best thing that could have happened close quote because of what it forced you to do yeah i'm i i get emotional even thinking about like him telling me that he had to go because I just had such a a bond with him and he was such a good cheerleader. And that's so rare in the industry. And really, I, I felt like I had found myself because of him um, and found myself as a writer, found what I was doing. I, got, I was excited again about being able to write and make a show. And I was already jealous because at that time he started working on Blackish too, and they were doing all well. So, and he would come back with stories about Robin working with Robin. I mean, um, working with Kenya, and then ultimately Robin when he was developing the nightly show. And I was really happy for him. <laughs> Make no mistake, like this was his lifelong dream was to host the nightly show um, in this way. Like that was his bag. So I had to be happy for him, but also I was sad for myself. So um, when he left. He assured me that he'd check in and stuff like that, and he did. But um, I just knew that HBO. I felt like if he left, they were just going to abandon the project. And so, can we can we pinpoint that moment? Because I think you were working on some other pilot at the time, right? And it, how do you even go back to work after you find that out? Yeah, I was uh, I was self financing these three pilots from these writers that I believed in, and so in my mind. I was like, well, I can self fund. I didn't intend to self finance it. This funding came through, which I was pissed about. And then I ended up just shouldering it, which was like all of my life savings. Mm-hmm. So like that, doing that, and then he, hearing that he was going to leave. Um, and I said, was it I, even in self financing? And I was like, well, it's cool because I still got, you know, we're, we turned in this other draft. I feel like this is the seventh draft. HBO's got to pick it up. For after insecure, this, yeah. For insecure. Yeah. A nonprofit at the time, actually. That's what it was called. Uh-huh. And then I got the call that, you know, he wasn't going to be doing it. And HBO, he was going to do the nightly show. And HBO didn't want to move forward with that draft. And I was like, I was at that pilot shooting. And I was like, okay, got it uh, on the phone. And I was like, I'll be right back to the set. And walked like <laughs> a couple blocks and just started crying. And was just like, what have I done? And I have not only lost a mentor but I've spent everything I've ever made since you know doing Awkward Black Girl on these pilots that I don't even have distribution for like I don't even really have a plan for um it's over but luckily HBO called and they were like um even though Larry's leaving like we just want to imagine we want to talk to you and and reimagine what the show could be because it feels like it's stunted at this part you've turned it in seven drafts and at that point you know, the Molly character was in there, but it was mostly about the nonprofit world. It was mostly like we got y'all centered with, you know, her occasional crush here and there. So they really loved this relationship I had in real life with my best friend who Molly was based off of. Like sometimes I come in and tell stories 
about her. And um, Casey Bloys, who was the exec on the project at the time, was like, what does it look like if you do like a Laverne Shirley type of show, um, Laverne and Shirley type of show with you and Molly? And I was like, oh. And he was like, you know, we, we still have that there, but if that's more of the prominent story. And I was like, I, I feel like I can do that. And took that draft back home and just reworked it. The Lawrence character didn't exist at the time. I actually named the Lawrence character after Larry uh, in Amex uh-huh. to him after he left. And I was like, I'm adding all these elements in my life. And, um, you know, that was the draft they ended up picking up. Amazing. And so I guess if if Larry was key collaborator number one, I guess key collaborator number two would be Prentice Penny, Prentice right? Prentice Penny all day. And, uh, and that's another one where kind of, I guess, fate in a way had to kind of intervene because at one point, and this would seem to be something to be excited about at that time, Chris Rock wanted to do it, right? Direct the pilot. Who? How did you know that? Hey, you know, we got to ask her. <laughs> so we sought Chris Rock out to direct the pilot. That's mm-hmm. when Prentice was already on board. So after mm-hmm. I lost Larry um, and they picked up the show, I, of course, needed a showrunner again. So he saw the announcement that it was picked up the series and had reached out through um, one of my agent friends, Ashley Holland, and through Lena Waithe. He'd like all these channels. He had reached out to try to set a meeting with me. And I love that passion. And then he, I finally ended up meeting with him outside of like a book signing and we talked forever. And then when he was locked in um, and I was like, this is my guy, it was time to find a director. And HBO really thought Chris Rock would be be great for it. Um, but he had a lot going on in his life at that time. And I'm really shocked that you know that. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I I think the other thing that's that's crazy was that I, there was like basically I, I don't know if you remember the specifics of this, but it seemed from one of these articles I read in, you know, going back in The New York Times, there was actually a New York Times reporter there the first time you met Prentice. Oh, uh, it wasn't. It, maybe it was the first time that we like sat down. It sounded like that where it's like. They they were like a fly on the wall as they, they, apparently you were like nervous to meet him. He comes in, you guys hit it off. This whole thing was crazy. I don't think that that was portrayed right because we had met for the first time outside of my book signing, and then uh, we okay. were maybe we were sitting down post that moment to, to talk, talk about it. Yeah, yeah, to talk about the show and everything. Um, which would be weird, which was bad practice on my part, <laughs> if that's actually the case. Hey, you want to talk about the show in front of this New York Times reporter? Uh, and he would say that that's pretty standard for me. So hopefully not. <laughs> well, so why do you think you two hit it off to the extent that you did where it's obviously, you know, lasted the duration of the of the show? Um, you've talked about kind of the fun ways in which you guys would get together after each season and plot uh, mm-hmm. what you would do for the next season. I guess I, I'd love for you to share the, the, where you guys would do that. Cause that seems like a nice way of, of, uh, going to work, uh, you know, nice. yes. but anyway, just overall, why did you two click? Because he's one, like one of the best people on earth. He's, um, he sent me this letter, uh, wrote me this letter and this is in the midst of me interviewing showrunners that HBO is sending me, you know, my reps are sending me. Um, but in that letter, what stood out to me was that he grew up in my neighborhood. Um, he went to the elementary school that my my older brothers went to, and he could also identify with uh, the awkward black. I mean, the um, we got y'all storyline. He'd worked in the nonprofit settings. He's been the only black dude. So there was just everything that he was saying. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe 
we have so much in common and he really seems to understand this this show. And then, of course, meeting him, he's just he's such a smart, egoless, like hilarious, genuinely hilarious person. He reminded me of one of my brothers. Um, and then the working relationship just developed there. I tended to feel like appreciative that he was on the show. And in some cases, I would feel... I would feel just to say it like shitty about making certain criticisms about like, oh, or, or pushing back on, on certain ideas. But he was just like, let's just get it all on the table. And then he in turn also uh, set the standard to be to be really comfortable telling me what he thought didn't work. And so we just established a transparent, honest relationship. And he was always very clear that the show was my vision, um, which I think is music to new creators ears because you hear so many horror stories about shows that get taken from um, yes. from first time creators in in service of these bigger names but he wanted this to succeed as badly as I I did cuz he had come up in writers rooms and this was his first time as a showrunner I guess and he'd done Scrubs, Brooklyn Nine Nine, Girlfriends, Girl, yeah, so many. He he'd been in so many different writers' rooms, um, and just kept ascending, but was ready for this. And but this was like a big deal for him too. And so there was just a trust there that we both wanted to make the best possible show. And then you know, as the show launched, and it was just a learning process for both of us. Then we just got comfortable in in terms of staffing the writers' room, and um, I've modeled so much of just my own running a show or creating shows after uh, his process of hiring writers, which is to make making sure that the writers rooms are not only diverse in practice, but in thought, like we didn't need uh, a bunch of the same people that thought like me and the same people that think like him, but just making sure that uh, we brought people who were just cool and who had something to say and that we wanted to be around for eight hours <laughs> And as the show progressed, we would like plan the seasons and go to like a random hotel pool, <laughs> rent a cabana and drink champagne and talk about the seasons. Uh, I got to I got to adopt that way of working. It's that the sounds best. great. <laughs> a, you also get to see how many people in L.A. just don't have jobs. Yeah, right. Like, just kick it. I'm like, why are there so many people here uh, right. in September on a Tuesday? This is crazy. <laughs> well, so. Here's a, I guess maybe it's, it sounds a little bit trivial, but I'd be curious to know why the title Insecure, which I guess, as you said, it started out as nonprofit. Um, and I think it was nonprofit spelled. PH. Yeah, PH for profit. It could have theoretically, I guess, been called Again, misadventures of awkward black girl, right? Mm. There's a larger audience. Um, and I mean, but ultimately, against the uh, urging of, of some people, I guess, you went with Insecure and also chose to name your character the same first name as you, obviously a different last name, but that can that can go both ways, too. So I just wonder uh, <laughs> why those two decisions? Well, the, the last the latter decision wasn't really one. And that was a mistake. I was just, you know, when you're trying to think of a character's name, you just put your name as a as a uh, placeholder, and that just stuck. But I for sure regret that. Though it has helped people learn how to pronounce my name, <laughs> and that's the best part. I but, saw a thing where you said like you're, you're you're you know when people are full of shit when you're like they're calling you. Please take the story. It, you know where I'm going. <laughs> people are always like, oh my god, I love your show so much. I'm your biggest fan. Um, like. Uh, 
Molly and Issa, that's my, <laughs> ooh, I love them. And I'm like, oh, really? You love the show so much and you love me, but you don't know how to pronounce my name. Cool. Right. Um, of course, which I never say. I'm just always like, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Right. Um, but the the former part, like just about the, the, the title of the show, Insecure, that really came from just thinking about what, there was an era during the time of creating the show where a lot of the language around black women and to describe black women was like fierce, flawless. And it was just like, you know, like we were super women and it felt like with that, that almost hurt us in a way. It, it mean that we weren't allowed to be flawed and we weren't allowed to be um, vulnerable in these ways and I felt like these characters represented that and that was the story that I was more interested in telling the story that I was telling um, and it felt like the flawless fierce thing while like positive was an overcorrection of what we had seen in the past in terms of the representation of black women so I just wanted to find the balance and be intentional about it um, and yeah there was pushback about that uh, just because the, to the person who was pushing back at the time, it felt like, you know, these were flawless and fierce people. And now he was just speaking of the narrative that he had, he had been hearing for black women. And so I said, respectfully, like, that's what I want to showcase. I want to showcase like that these women feel this way and that that's okay. And that's like, and every person feeling. And um, when I said that, he was just like, okay, cool. Let's yeah. call it insecure then. So the reason you have some regrets about calling the character Issa, though, is that people assume that it's entirely autobiographical or what's the what's the reason? Yeah, it, that it, it, people assume it's entirely autobiographical. My character cheats on her boyfriend in the first season. Sorry, spoiler. I hope people still go watch <laughs> it. But like people got so mad at me and, um, you know, like just even on social media, like they just... Uh, called me a cheater, like it would call me all kinds of names. And I'm like, do people know this is a character, right? right? Like this is not a reality show. People would in that first season really treat the show like it was a reality show. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and then beyond that, just wanting to have some separation, just wanting to play someone that, and even though it was, you know, a, a very close to my life, I just wish I had named her like Anna or something. I don't right. know. <laughs> and I guess the, the greatest similarity that actually existed? Would we say that you, real Issa, had a real Molly of your own, essentially? Yes, for sure. Definitely have a Molly of my own. A Molly who was very generous in sharing <laughs> her life and did not fully get offended after she read that first script. When I sent her the pilot, <laughs> I was like, girl, so I might be writing this thing about you, um, but let me know. If you hate it, then I won't yeah. do it. <laughs> and she laughed. She was like, this yeah. is crazy. Also, fuck you. But this is this is great. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I saw another thing that you said once where, uh, quote, I know very well that there is no insecure without Shonda and Scandal. Mm -hmm. I know that possibly there is no insecure without even girls, close quote. Can you expand upon that? Why were those shows that would have helped to make insecure possible? Well, when I think about Shondaland, um, Shonda Rhimes, what she was able to do with Scandal. Like, that was the first black female lead uh, on, I mean, on a drama since Julia, which I, I believe was in the 70s. But, like, generally on my, in, my, in my lifetime, I hadn't seen that since. Like, The Girlfriends. Um, and 
it was just powerful. Like the way that it took over social media on Thursday, Thursday nights, the way that black people uh, congregated and owned that show, the way it, it just it started an ecosystem of even contributions to TV from like the podcast to the recaps and all those things that I saw like people in my orbit aspiring to. And so I recognize that with Scandal in particular, like that energized the black community that energized creators and um, it definitely energized me. It was just so cool. And, um, and for girls, like where HBO is concerned, Girls was a big niche hit for them. And what Lena Dunham was able to do in terms of setting a standard look wise and um, really just putting this, her particular lens um, at the forefront and with guys watching that show, like I understand, HBO understood what it had there. And I think that 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 show made and the, even the criticisms for that show of it being not diverse enough opened the door for them to want to meet with me and, and to make something that you know um kind of felt within that world oh, so interesting so as you guys took off over the over the five seasons what was it like for you to see that, you know, that that following grow like you're talking about that you guys had your own social media, uh, huge presence, uh, live tweeting and all of that and podcasts and social, you know, just people went nuts about this. They were uh, their moods were affected by what was going on on, on your show, um, I guess, on a, on a, you know, just in other ways that manifested, you've got. You know, you've turned the dunes into a, a tourist attraction now, you know, mm. like stuff like that. Um, but also you're getting great feedback from not only critics of all backgrounds and uh, audiences of all backgrounds, but you're getting people like Regina King and Kerry Washington wanting to come work with you. You're getting Emmy nominations where that was not always a particularly diverse group of nominees mm. that were coming out of there. So I guess just as things were evolving with this, was it just, I know it was actually overall in a pretty short time frame that all of this has happened. Did you ever have time to kind of step back and process what was going on? This year is like really my first time being able to process everything that's happened. And with the show ending, you know, obviously you, you get um, you get to have a little retrospective moments and like reflect about everything that we've all accomplished since then. And, you know, we have a group chat with some of the cast and um, like we'll reminisce and things like that. But for the most part during that time, it was really just go, go, go. And there's such a fear that you won't be able to do this again, that you kind of just keep your head down and do the work. And of course, the moments when we were acknowledged for Emmys and when we'd be celebrated um, and, you know, referenced in certain ways, like all those moments are cool in the moment. But like for me, I just I operate with like okay, let's go, go, go. Let's keep trying to make it better because you never know, like, this could be over tomorrow. Something could change. And, like, whether it's the looming writer strikes that would pause certain things and obviously COVID and all those things, it always just felt like, oh, no, is this going to go away? Um, and this year is the first time that I've been like, oh, my gosh, so much has happened. And uh, it's been it's been 10 years. Like, and Insecure ended 
uh, the when when I first started Awkward Black, ten years after I first started Awkward Black Girl, mm-hmm. which was like, wow, this has been such a, a long journey, but not that long. Like, and there's and I feel like I'm just getting started. So if some, I, I was just thinking of a crazy hypothetical, but I'm curious what your take on this would be. So you're an old lady, many many years from now. And you sit down on an airplane and some young punk kid sits down next to you and says, oh, you're Issa Rae. I know that among many other great things you did Insecure, I've heard, but I haven't seen it. I got to got to catch up on this. Um, what what was Insecure and why was it socially so significant? How would you and when I say a kid, let's just say like somebody yeah. who's old enough to understand, you know, a smart conversation. What would you what would you say about that? How would you answer that? What a dope question. Thank you. So this person sitting next to me, one, I'm not the type to like tell people who, like what the impact of my show would be. But to them, I'd be like, you know, thank you so much. It was it was such a crazy time because it felt special to be one of the few shows that was showcasing black women in that light uh, at the time. And now... You wouldn't even know that because there's so many great shows out here that showcase all that showcase all different types of ways to be black and, and Asian and all these other things. So you might not know how rare it was then to be able to have those opportunities, especially behind the camera. Like we were doing something that a lot of shows weren't thinking about doing during the time. And um, I'm proud to be one of a few shows led by black creators during the time that that led the way on that. That's great. So when Insecure... Now I'm going to go to sleep and put my headphones <laughs> on. Please don't bother me. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, get out of here, kid. <laughs> um, so uh, when the... When the Insecure, I mean, I know for you, obviously, well before for audiences, Insecure was coming to an end. It was coming to an end for for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that Tura period, of course. Um, and you're doing, you're winding down during COVID. It's not the same as it had been for the earlier seasons. All of that. Was that a feeling of, you know, the fact that you're nearing the finish line, was that a feeling of relief, fear? Like, how do you follow something that's had such a big footprint. Um, just what was that like for you? It was for sure relief because we were, I'll say this, stopping, when we stopped filming it, it was relief um, because I was proud and I was tired and I felt like in addition to my, to me, like that the cast, the writers, I think everybody was just ready. They loved the show and loved being a part of the, the the process. But I think everybody was also ready to like spread their wings and do their own thing. So I felt relieved not to be holding people back from that. And that was always something I was conscious of. Even season one, I was like, how are we going to get these actors to stay if we do like five <laughs> seasons? And these writers, um, everybody's just so good. And um, so in that way, like I was super just excited to be done. And then, you know, when it, when it airs, it's a whole different thing. Like, will people like it? Will they mess with it? There's already so much pressure. But, you know, after that finale episode, I took a six month social media break. I was mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, then it was just like I, I've never felt the need to top it. I, I feel like it's very much what it is. I know just from being a fan of, you know, other creators work. I know that people are always going to compare 
anything I do to insecure if they like if they liked it. Um, and I'm fine with that. I'm just like, you know, I just ask for the grace to to for my other projects to be given a chance and then decide whether or not you like them. But, you know, I'm, I'm not mad at that at all. Well, and so already we have the first project after Insecure, Rapture. Yes. This is HBO Max. And I wonder, you know, just for people who don't know, there's it's Miami set, essentially an odd couple yes. who, uh, you know, are forming or pursuing rap after they go viral for a drunken (laughs) video uh, of freestyling. Um, And I wonder, though, you clearly have a a deep interest in love for music yourself. We see that in the soundtrack of Insecure. We see that from I don't know if it was the first episode or early on you're you yourself what was broken pussy broken pussy episode <laughs> one yep yeah um, that's right so you mentioned your the real Molly had to yes. <laughs> had to process that one uh, but just uh, you know I guess why is music important enough to you that this would be a, a central part of not only insecure but also the the project after insecure well I mean you said it I I, I have so much love for music, rap music. I love uh, female artists. And when HBO Max approached me about like what I wanted my next show to be, like that was still, um, that was still gestating in my mind. And in particular, when I was, when I'm thinking about this time, like there's just so many dope female rappers. And uh, I just was curious about what that come up looked like. And that come up right now. And I, I kept on thinking about how the internet is so, such at the center of these artists being able to be discovered and how hard that is to be yourself and make yourself um, within this time with so many eyes watching you kind of find yourself and make yourself and how you might manipulate that. And so, um, yeah, I just got really curious about that world and, and wanted to make a show around it. And in addition to that, can you mention some of the, I know it's like, very long uh, list probably, but all the other things that are gestating or at some point of gestation at the moment, I know uh, among them is the Greta Gerwig version of Barbie, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not my idea. I'm just yes. privileged to be a part of that. Like yes. uh, Greta is one of the most amazing human beings and funniest human beings on earth. And so uh, that was a really, really fun project. Uh, I'm internally working on a, a movie trying to find a director right now, talking to different directors to, to shoot an, ad, an adaptation of this movie, Perfect Strangers. Um, and I'm really excited about that. And um, on the producing side, like uh, working with Jabuki, who I think is just immensely talented on uh, his show for HBO. So we're developing that right now and we'll see. But um, And then Project Greenlight. Like that's probably the next thing that's going to be up. We just finished that season the the director who won is editing her film so we'll see when that when that gets released but they're just little things here and there that that we've been working on and you have a record label right yes oh yes yes on the uh we have a record label called radio which we call an audio everywhere company in addition to being a label uh, we do music supervision, so they do the music supervision for Rap Ship, P Valley, like lots of shows. Actually, and and um, the Sex and the City spinoff, and just like that, and just like that, like all yeah. these different shows. We have an incredible team. 
uh, there and um, then a management company, Color Creative. Uh, but those are all under the Hooray umbrella. And this is for, for people spelling along at home. H-O-O-R-A-E. Gotta yeah, love it. I do yeah, love it. Yeah, <laughs> love name puns. So. Yes. That's <laughs> how so you know it's my company. How else are you going to know it's my company? If it's of course. Race, no, I think it's great. I love it. <laughs> um, last two things, just briefly. Uh, because you're now part of the, the HBO Max family with Rapshed, I just have to ask. I'm curious what your take is. Obviously, it's a interesting situation they're dealing with with creators and network considerations, just all of that. What do you have any thoughts on that? In terms of like the consolidation of everything? Are you talking well, about that? Well, not, not even just the consolidation, but I guess like, you know, we're seeing now some back and forth about some projects that are disappearing off the map. Like the oh, whole, I mean, but yeah. 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 I mean, I, I do think it comes down to that in these changes. I think anytime that you have a merger um, and you have new leadership, decisions are going to be made that seem to be for the best of the company. I think in this case, there's a very clear mandate that they want to save billions of dollars. And uh, that is going to involve some painful decisions. I can't say that I, I personally understand them. And I'm, I'm sure as the creators, specifically of the, the directors of, of Batgirl and the, and the cast involved in that, like that's got to be devastating to be kind of like the first to be cut in a social experiment, it seems, or a business experiment. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious to see where it goes. I'm, I love the, the staff that I work with. I think uh, there's some incredibly smart people that, that work on the Max team. I have not met the Discovery team um, yet. I haven't met Zasloff yet. I've heard so much. I've read so much. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious to see what's going to happen. Um, either way, I'm going to create. Yeah, right, right. And I guess the final question, a place I thought we could end is, in addition to the stuff that you are doing yourself, I think it feels like one of the maybe greatest legacies, if not the greatest legacy in the long run, could be the fact that you've given kind of that opportunity, a foot in the door, or at least a boost to a lot of other people who might not have otherwise had it. And I just want to note, at the Emmys that you're going to be attending as a Best Actress in a Comedy Series nominee, I, I assume you'll be attending this year. Yes. Um, here's a couple of the other people who will also be there as nominees. Robin Thede for A Black Lady Sketch Show, Ooh. which you are an EP of. Quinta Brunson, who yes. I, is nominated in the same category as you, who on her episode uh, a couple of weeks ago said that, you know, it was so meaningful to her that you had just kind of reached out, I think, out of the blue there when you got, I think that's how you guys first uh, connected and you're sort of a, a role model for what, what she's doing. Then we've got mm. Natasha Rothwell, who is central yes. to Insecure, who's also nominated for White Lotus. I mean, this is like going to be like a family reunion. Can you just talk about, you know, those guys specifically, but also just generally the idea that it's it's got to be kind of nice and certainly important to take along a lot of other people for the ride? It's going to be a just a big party. I'm so, so excited. Um you know, I don't by any means take take credit for any uh, of those nominations. Like that's, it's just incredible to see the Academy uh, acknowledge so much of their hard work and their talent. Um, and I'm just happy that 
people are fans of them just like I am. I'm lightweight salty that the Academy acknowledged Natasha for White Lotus. No, White Lotus <laughs> and not Insecure, but I'm just right. going to assume that they saw her Insecure being funny as fuck. And then they were right. like, what? She has so much range on White Lotus. Let's give it to her for this. Um, but yeah, I'm just proud of everybody. Awesome. Well, I so appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and uh, keep up all the great work. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much, Scott. Dang, you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.